0: are my friend Hey, we need to check this for a second okay is it working glenn it's not popping or okay that's great hey are you thomas no you're not thomas are you is thomas here there's thomas okay thomas i'm sorry you're new and i pointed at you and that's like bad form uh thomas drove up from texas he's working on getting our hallelujah and hell video translated into farsi and broadcast in iran so that's that's pretty cool so uh, so, uh, wh- what's your name? Irwin. Irwin. Sorry, Irwin. I thought you were Thomas. So, I'm kind of a dork. So, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, uh, thank you for this morning, and Lord, I thank you that your word um, is going out, that your word is living and active, that Jesus, you are the word, you're the word in flesh, and... Lord, I, I, I get so worried about, what, am I doing the right thing? Are we doing the right thing? Are, how, is, is your word going out? But your word is yourself. You, you are alive. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that, that uh, you do not return void. And so this morning, Lord God, as we preach, we pray that your word would ride out and that you would conquer our hearts and that you would draw us to yourself and that you would be glorified and the whole world would see Lord God, that you are good. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. No, Your Majesty, this is a very serious problem. The peasants feel. You have no regard for them. What? I have no regard for the peasants. They are my people. I am their sovereign. I love them. (laughs) Paul! Drifting to the left. Lucky. Your Majesty. Mm. It's good to be the king. It's good to be the king. We think it's good to be the king, but it's hard to find a king that's good or happy. They usually end up alone with a tortured soul. God warns Israel about kings. You may remember that from the Old Testament, but they still, they still want a king. And basically all their kings are bad. Even David murders Uriah sleeps with his wife Bathsheba. In the New Testament, Herod the Great, the first king that we meet, and he's the king of the Jews. And feeling threatened by another king of the Jews, he has all the infants in Bethlehem slaughtered, all the male infants. He he does just what he thinks the other king of the Jews would want to do to him if he only had the chance. Herod Antipas is Herod the Great's son. He's the King Herod that has John the Baptist beheaded, then seeks to have Jesus killed, and finally mocks Jesus on Good Friday and sends him back to Pilate. The book of Acts records that he goes on to persecute the church. He beheads James, and then when he tacitly agrees with the idea that he is God, an angel strikes him dead. He's, he, well, he strikes him, then he's eaten by worms, and then I, I guess he dies. Freaky! And yet, you know, we're all going to die. And according to Scripture, we're all going to be eaten by a worm, or our bodies are going to be eaten by a worm. Isaiah chapter 66, in the Valley of Gehenna. Well, anyway, Matthew 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. You know, we're doing a story about Jesus stories. He, He heard a Jesus story. He heard about his power and the miracles he was working And Herod said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, he's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers, these superpowers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she would ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his gas, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Herod thinks it's good to be the king because the king is the law. The king is the judge. The king is the measure. And, And so number one, Herod insults his brother by seducing his wife. That's what kings do. Number two, he divorces his bride and commits adultery. He breaks covenant. That's what kings do. Number three, he swears an oath. In Matthew chapter five, a sermon on the mount, right after saying don't insult your brother, don't commit adultery even in your heart, Jesus says never swear an oath. You know swearing has nothing to do with dirty words but everything to do with making promises. Our hope does not lie in making promises or keeping promises, but in a promise that someone else has made. Well, Herod swore an oath. That's what kings do. Number four, Herod took vengeance. That's what kings do. Basically, Herod does everything that Jesus says not to do in the Sermon on Mount, chapter chapter five, And so Herod sins and ends up killing the prophet, John the Baptist. Herod sins and silences the word of God. He sins. Have you ever wondered why God seems to be so uptight about about sin? I mean, we understand that murdering prophets is bad, right? Everybody, Everybody knows that. But why does God get so worked up about careless careless little insults, for instance, spoken in private to a a friend? Matthew 5, Jesus says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire, the Gehenna of fire, I mean, why would God care if you entertained a little lust for your neighbor's wife? Why is that such a big deal? And what's his beef with taking oaths? We all know that we don't keep them. Why does he get so worked up over little white lies? And vengeance, vengeance, Matthew five thirty nine. Jesus says, don't resist him who is evil. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Why is God so uptight about sin? I mean, even little sins in your heart, why is he so uptight? Is he easily offended? Is he quick to anger? Is that why? Have you heard people say stuff like this? You know, even the smallest sin against a perfectly just God deserves an eternal, unending, conscious torment. You heard that? This is a strange thing to say, actually, because the Bible really never says that. And because Jesus seems to say that God's perfection is love for his enemies. And you know, you would think that the bigger God is, the less he'd be concerned about retaliation against little people like us. I mean, if an ant bites me, well, I might squash it, but I'm not interested in torturing it forever without end. Why even bother? If I sin against God, why does he even care? Job 41.11, God says to Job, who has prevented me? Who has stood in my way that I should repay him? That's kind of a good question, isn't it? So why is God so concerned with your sin? Why is God so uptight about a little betrayal, a little covenant breaking, a little oath taking, a little retaliation, a a little sin, even if, especially if it's only in your heart? Well, Herod Sins. He silences, and he silences the word of God in, in John the Baptist. Luke, Luke 23, on Good Friday, Herod meets Jesus. Herod wants to see a sign, and check this out, Jesus is the sign. He's the sign of Jonah. He's the slaughtered lamb. He stands before Herod, beaten, broken, bloodied, and Herod cannot read the sign. It's like the eyes of his heart have been blinded. And so he mocks Jesus and sends Jesus back to Pilate who has Jesus, the word of God, crucified. So, 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 so why is God so concerned with sin? Even if, especially if it's, it's like only in your heart. Well I find it rather fascinating that Matthew and Mark, both of them, recount the story of Herod's sins, all to explain Herod's perception of Jesus. Did, did you catch this? Chapter 14 verse 1 At that time Herod the tek- tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants Well this is John the Baptist he has been raised from the dead that's why these superpowers these miraculous powers are at work in him for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias his brother's wife etc 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 because of this because of that because of this you see Herod thought Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead, having come back just to kick his ass. That's what he thought. And so if Jesus ever did die and rise from the dead, Herod would believe that it was all in order to come back and just kick his ass. Why do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Why do you believe that he's coming back? kick some ass? Is that why? Sorry to be so so blunt. And, and I already cleared it up. That's not swearing, right? That's not swearing. I mean, sorry to be so blunt. I, I chose to say it that way because, well, that's what we think. And, and, and I don't quite know how else to say it. I think it's accurately portraying what most folks believe because that's what most folks would do if they could only rise from the dead and come back. I think most Folks should put their faith in a kick ass Messiah. I found these products online. Jesus is coming. And boy, is he pissed. Run like Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Look busy. You seen that bumper sticker? Jesus is coming back and this time no one's gonna cross him. Look, you wouldn't like Jesus when he's angry. See, he's getting uncrossed, busting off of that cross. Many folks seem to think he, he deserves our respect because he's more kick-ass than Mohammed, more kick-ass than Buddha, more kick-ass than Hugh Hefner and those guys that wanna raise your taxes. We think that's why this, that's what the, what the spirit in, in the fire, remember we preached about it a couple weeks ago, we think that's what it's all about. We think that's what holiness is all about, just kicking some ass. Herod believes, you see, in that kind of holy. The Jews believed in that kind of holy. That's why they crucified Jesus, because he rode an ass, and he wouldn't kick some Roman ass. Well, anyway, I'm just saying, Herod assumed that Jesus was all about retaliation, when Jesus was all about grace. Even his retaliation is grace. Herod assumed that God was all about vengeance, When God is all about love and his vengeance is the revelation of love. Herod assumed Jesus was like himself. So even the greatest sign, the sign of Jonah, the slaughtered lamb standing right before him, the greatest sign he would read as a trick or a ploy in the gospel of grace, the proclamation of grace, he would hear it as a threat. Why? Why? because that's what kings do they make threats that's what herod does he makes himself the measure he makes himself the judge the judge of god's judgment he makes himself the measure he makes himself the frame of reference some time ago a senior citizen was driving down the freeway when his cell phone rang it was his wife she urgently warned him, Herman, Herman, I just heard on the news that there's a car going the wrong way on Interstate 280. Please be careful, Herman. Herman said, Well, honey, it, it's not just one car, it's hundreds. <laughs> See, we make ourselves the standard, we make ourselves the measure, and thereby trap ourselves in our own little insane reality. So, how do you get a Herman to listen? How do you get a Herod? to listen. Anthony DeMello writes this. We all have our positions, don't we? And we listen from those positions. Henry, how you've changed. My goodness, you were so tall and you've grown so short. You were so well built and you've grown so thin. You were so fair and you've become so dark. What happened to you, Henry? And Henry says, I'm not Henry. I'm John. Oh my goodness, you changed your name as well. How do you get people like that to listen? You know, every time you sin, consciously or unconsciously, you somehow think my judgment is superior to God's judgment and you thereby make yourself the measure. How do you get people like that to listen? Jesus said the measure you give is the measure you get. Maybe that's because it's the only measure that will believe. In the Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf says this. The enemy is very wise and weighs all things to a nicety in the scales of his malice. The only measure that he knows is desire, desire for power. And so he judges all hearts. Into his heart, the thought will not enter that having the ring, the ring of power, we might seek to destroy it. That is, evil cannot conceive of a king who would voluntarily lay down power. So if a king ever did empty himself, take the form of a slave, lay down power, and descend into doom, it would surely be a trick. It would surely be some sort of ploy before an eternal ass-kicking would think evil. John puts it this way in his Gospel. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not comprehended it. Evil cannot comprehend love. The father of lies cannot comprehend truth, the truth. Someone said the chief punishment of the liar is not so much that he no longer is believed, but that he can no longer believe. Likewise, the chief punishment of the adulterer is not so much that he is no longer trusted, but that he can no longer trust. So if a king were to rise from the dead and stand before Herod swearing covenant blood and eternal grace sealed in blood, Herod would only experience that love as torture, eternal torture. Listen to Psalm 18. This is also 2 Samuel 22. Psalm 18, verse 25. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. Does God change? Is he sometimes love and sometimes not love? No. Does Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, does he change? No. Does God change? No, but do we change? Yeah. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. So, you know, if you think that God is torturous... If you think that he's into torture, maybe you're into torture. Maybe you're crooked and you need to be purified by fire. Not tortured by fire, refined by the eternal fire. Maybe you think you're the king and so you have measured the king of kings in the scales of your own malice. Well anyway, Herod thinks that Jesus it is John the Baptist, risen from the dead, coming back just to kick his tail, because that's exactly what Herod would have done. Herod is measuring Jesus with himself. Herod is asking, what do these superpowers mean? Remember when Jesus heals the paralytic lowered through the roof that we looked at a few, a few months ago, with, he heals him with his superpower. Jesus says this, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Matthew records that when the people saw the paralytic walk, they were afraid. Even though Jesus just said, I'm doing this to show that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. That's my superpower. See, maybe Jesus rose from the dead so that we might know our sins are forgiven, that we might know he has taken away the sins of the world. Uh, that we might know he has destroyed the work of the evil one, the accuser, the devil, Uh, that we might know it is finished and no longer be paralyzed in fear, hiding in fig leaves in the trees, hiding from our creator who is love. You know, when Jesus did rise from the dead, he said stuff like this, peace be with you, fear not, I mean, why didn't he head straight down to the praetorium and just punch Pilate in the head? That's what I would have done. Why didn't he hunt Herod down and just kick his ass? And now I know what some of you are thinking, will you just wait, Peter? One day he will. First time he came in love, second time he's coming in vengeance. The Bible, you know, actually doesn't say that. It actually seems to indicate that the first time was vengeance. But people say, well the first time was mercy, the first time was love, but the second time is retaliation, vengeance, and Jesus uncrossed. Second Timothy 4.8, Paul says that a crown of righteousness is laid up for all who have loved his appearing. I'm not so sure that we have loved his appearing, because we seem to want a different kind of appearing the second time around. And that's why people say the first time he came in love, the second time will be vengeance. The first time he rode an ass, the second time, he'll be riding a horse. The first time he came as a lamb, the second time he's coming as a lion. The second time he's coming as a kick-ass messiah. And Pastor Peter, if you read the book of Revelation, you'd know that. Why, I have read the book of Revelation. I was always scared of the book of revelation until we preached to it for a few years years ago and i published a book on the revelation and i think this is what i found most amazing about the book of revelation hebrews 13:8. jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever he does not change but we change check out revelation chapter 5 and 6. john hears Uh, this voice. It says, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And he looks, and he sees a lamb standing on the throne as if it had been slain. The lamb is worthy to open the scroll, giving meaning to all things. The seven seals, like the seven days of creation. When he opens the sixth seal, this is what we read. Behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, now that would include Herod, The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Did you get that? They're not running and hiding from the lion. They're running from the lamb. And he isn't even chasing them. He's standing on a throne, like bleeding, wounded. His very lionness is terror-inducing quality. His very lionness is his very slaughtered lambness. They're terrified for all judgment, power, and glory belongs to the lamb that they slaughtered. But he has not changed. The kings of the earth must change in his presence. His presence burns their arrogant illusions like fire. Why was he slain? For the sins of the world. Why is he risen? Because it is accomplished. Why are they running? Because they still believe the lie that it is not accomplished. And why do they still believe the lie? Because they have made themselves the measure, they have measured love with their own sin. In psychological terms, they are projecting themselves onto God, making God in their image rather than being made in God's image by his word. They think the king of glory is a king like themselves. Now how do you get people like that to listen? Herod hides from the lamb, who sounds like a lion, to Herod. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the lion, you know, who is also Jesus the lamb, He sings Narnia into existence, giving meaning to all things. Uncle Andrew, the magician, doesn't like the song, so he convinces himself that the lion's song is only a roar. And Aslan says to the children, I cannot speak to this old sinner, and I cannot comfort him either. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would only hear growlings and roarings. Oh, Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourselves against all that might be good. You see, the kings of the earth, they see the risen Christ. They see the lamb upon the throne, God's song of love, and they only hear growling and roaring because they think he only wants to kick their ass. You know, at the end of the Revelation, the gates of the New Jerusalem are always open. You can read it. It's fascinating. They're always open. But outside are the magicians, the adulterers, the murderers, and all liars. Why don't they go in? Well, it's not because the gates are closed. It must be that they don't want to go in. Or they believe that they can't go in. Or can't even see the kingdom right in front of them, wide open. They cannot see the kingdom at hand. Do you see why God hates it when we sin? Even in our hearts. Especially in our hearts. For then the eyes of our hearts are blinded. When we betray lust, lie, and retaliate, we assume God betrays lust, lies, and retaliates, and so we can't believe in God, for God is love. We can't see heaven, for heaven is grace. We can't hear his voice. We only hear a lion growling. So I'm convinced that your deepest problem is not the sins that you often commit, but what they lead you to believe. I'm convinced your deepest problem is not the cigarettes you smoke or the alcohol that you drink In secret, it's not the slander you speak or the gossip you cherish. It's not the pornography that you pleasure yourself with. It's not the baby that you aborted. It's not that you betrayed your brother, cheated on your bride, lied about the whole thing, and retaliated with murder. It's not even that you slaughtered the lamb and killed the Messiah. Your deepest problem is that somewhere deep down inside of you, you believe that Jesus the Messiah rose from the dead just to kick your ass. When in fact, He rose from the dead so you would believe. All is forgiven. It is finished. Righteousness and justice is accomplished and the Father is pleading with you. Come home. Come home, come home, come home. I have shoes for you. I have rings for you. I have a robe of righteousness for you. Come home. Your biggest problem is that you think God is just like you, and you have measured him in the scales of your own malice. So why does God hate sin? Because it's a lie in your heart that makes you hide in fig leaves and trees when God wants to go for a walk with you in his garden in the cool of the day. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Why does God hate sin? Because it's the lie that you are a king, that you are the judge, that you are the creator. It's It's a lie that makes a prison of your very own soul. Well, O King Herod and the kings of the earth, they see the lamb on the throne. They see Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. They see forgiveness in the flesh and cannot trust him, for they are convinced he's gonna kick their ass. And you know what? In a strange and holy way, he is. They will be burned by the fire. But it is a strange and holy fire. It's Holy Spirit fire. You know, whenever we see the slaughtered lamb standing on the throne saying all is forgiven, Father, forgive them. And and the answer is his prayer, Father, forgive them. Whenever we hear the good news of God's grace, something deep down in our flesh says, what's the catch? And I think that's the catch. That there is absolutely no catch. The catch is that the kingdom of God is absolutely free and our ego desperately wants to pay. If we're not only saved 100% by grace, but created 100% by grace, then we are not our own creator, our own judge, our own savior, our own king, and our ego must burn in the presence of the true king, the true savior, the true judge, our true creator. Unmerited, uncreated, unmitigated, eternal love utterly fries the human ego. The kings hide themselves, for they won't die to themselves. They hide in darkness, in the depths of the earth, in the depths of their own souls. And here's a sobering thought. It's not just kings like Herod and Pilate. Revelation 6.15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, that would include you and me. everyone slave, everyone free, hid themselves from the lamb on the throne. And how do you get a person like that to listen? The measure they give is the only measure they get because it's the only measure they'll believe. They give betrayal, lust, lies, and retaliation and run from the lamb expecting betrayal, lust, lies, and retaliation. How do you get people like that to listen? Well, this is still the sixth seal. The the lamb is slain on the sixth day of creation, the sixth day of the week, at the sixth hour on a cross. It's there that John pictures the slaughtered lamb as being enthroned. It's there that he reveals the truth, the truth that the measure we give is not the only measure that we receive. We give betrayal, lust, faithlessness, retaliation, but God gives Jesus. Number one, instead of betraying his brothers, he allowed his enemies to betray him and then makes them his brothers. Number two, instead of consuming his bride, he allowed us to consume him and then makes us his bride. He said, eat my body, drink my blood. Number three, instead of making oaths and breaking oaths, in Christ God reveals the eternal oath, the covenant. Jesus is God's swear word, and he's swearing through Jesus. He's saying, he's swearing, I love you. I bear your curse in order to give you my blessing. Number four, although you slaughter me with your sin, I retaliate with infinite mercy. You thought I was one like yourself, for you measured me with yourself, but now I am destroying that old self. I am love and I am the measure of all things. God's judgment is unmerited love. God's judgment is grace. The measure you give is not the only measure you get or you would not exist at all, right? And so once you give sin and receive sin, Once you give nothingness and receive nothingness, God reveals grace and destroys your old sinful measure. He he burns away your pride. So if you think you are your pride, if you think you are your own measure, if you think you are a self-made man, a self-made woman, well, you'll run from Jesus and hide in Hades. What the kings of the earth call the wrath of the lamb is the very thing we drink at, at this table. Wine that's blood, blood that's fire. If you run from this, you'll hide in hell. And how do you get people like that to listen? Years ago, I got to go on this incredible trip to Colombia with Honey Gutierrez, some of you know Honey, uh, where we met with pastors of persecuted churches that have been persecuted by rebel groups in Colombia, mostly in rural areas. On that trip, I met this young man named Alex. He shared how guerrillas had come to his village, killed his father, threatened his mother with machetes. He told us how he struggled with his faith, how he wondered about what he called God's strange gifts, until he realized that Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, is God's gift. One day, he said, a paramilitary group stopped a bus on which he was riding to work on a banana plantation. Gunmen came aboard the bus, made everybody lie face down, and then they began shooting. A bullet passed between Alex's eyes, blowing one out and damaging the other. As he lay there, convinced that he was gonna die, he remembered that he hadn't told the gunmen about Jesus. Alex said to us, the love of the Lord is everything. There is nothing else. And so he began to yell on the floor of the bus, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. The gunmen were going through the bus, beheading their victims with machetes. One man came to Alex, and he screamed at Alex, yelling on the floor, shut up! And he swung his machete, and he swung his machete again, and he swung it again, and again, and again, and it would not go through Alex's neck. Alex said it was the power of God. The man fled in terror with the other gunmen, leaving Alex tied to 25 corpses. This is a picture of Alex. So I remember Alex stood there in front of us, telling his story, looking like a slaughtered lamb, standing, cane, eye patch, machete scars on his neck. Would you run from him? Or would you run to him? Years after the incident on the bus, Alex went to seminary and began working in a prison ministry. One day in that prison, he met the man that had tried to kill him, and he told the man, I forgive you. Uh, My friend Rich, who was on the trip, said, Alex, tell everybody how he reacted when you said, I forgive you. And, And Alex said he was afraid. He was afraid of the slaughtered lamb standing on the throne." He was convinced that the measure he had given was the only measure he could receive. It was the only measure he would believe. So how do you get a person like that to listen? How do you get a person like that to believe? You don't. Salvation is a gift because faith is a miracle. Salvation is a gift because believing is a miracle. If you can make someone believe, if you can make yourself believe, then you're not saved by grace. And you don't have faith in God, you have faith in yourself. You think that you are God and you are king, and that's the very definition of sin and the root of all sins. Don't sin because it's a lack of faith in grace and God is grace. Sin makes you run from grace and hide in hell. So, how do you get a person like that to listen? A person dead in their trespasses and sins. A person trapped in their own vortex of pride and shame. Imprisoned in their own hell. How do you get a person like you or me or King Herod to listen? How do you get a person like that to believe? You don't. But God does. Revelation 21. After the word of God rides out. It's an incredible picture. sword coming out of his mouth after he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, and the birds of the air come and eat the flesh of the kings of the earth, and quote, all men, Revelation 19, 18, and Revelation 21, uh, 24, the kings of the earth bring their glory into the open gates of the new Jerusalem. The kings of the earth. I think that would include Herod. What's happened? They've lost their lives and found them. When Jesus, the word of God, was crucified, he trampled the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. He bore our sins and transformed them into grace. He is God's good judgment on all our bad judgment. He is God's grace that burns our pride like consuming fire. He is the word that judges our flesh like a flaming sword. He is the word that disarms the principalities and powers the kings of this earth. The word of grace that disarms the accuser, the devil. He is the word that descends into the depths of the earth and the depths of your own soul to set the captives free. He is the word of faith that you utter the moment you begin to believe is the seed planted within you. Even as I preach, the word burns your ego, your pride, and your prison of shame. Even as I preach, that word, that seed, descends into your soul and you begin to believe, you begin to mutter, Abba, Abba, Father. And you see, it's not me, but the word. Yeah, the Word rides an ass, but, but the Word's not dependent on the ass. Or on the war horse. It's not me, it's not Alex, it's the Word. It's not Matthew, it's not John, it's not Saint Paul, but the Word. The Word of God is living and active and cannot be stopped. The Word of God is the Word of love. God is love, the Word of God is grace. It's the measure we get long before we could ever even pretend to give. If we don't give grace, we don't give anything. If the measure you give is your own accomplishments and your good deeds, you give nothing, receive nothing, and you're trapped in nothing. But if the measure you give is grace, because you've seen that the measure you get is all grace, then you're lost and you're found in God, who is grace. God is love, and the word of God is grace. And grace is king. It's written on his thigh in Revelation 19. King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, it's not so good to be the king. It's so very good not to be the king. Because then you can be loved by the king. Behold the king. Behold the Lamb of God, for on the night that we all betrayed him, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper and having given thanks he took the cup and he said this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it all of you and do it in remembrance of me. When we betrayed him he did not betray us. When we broke covenant he he made covenant. When we lie he is the truth. He's the king. And so come to the table and surrender lordship to him. And let him fill you with mercy he's the word of god that makes you in his own image in jesus name let's worship amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a And so why were you born into this world? You're born into this world because your father wants to show you something. He is showing you something. He's showing you a slaughtered lamb standing on the throne. He's showing you his heart, Jesus from the bosom of the father. He's speaking to you. His word. And this is what he's saying. I give everything for you. I give Jesus the Christ, my heart, and all things with him for you. Why? Because of something you have done? Because of a decision you have made? Because of a good deed that you performed? No! But because this is who I am. And when you see me, you are made in my image, by my word, my heart. And so, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, drop those fig leaves and let me clothe you in my righteousness. Sip out of the trees and I'll put some shoes on your feet and a a ring on your hand and I want you to walk with me. No more hiding in the trees, no more hiding in the fig leaves, but walk with me. I have already forgiven you from the foundation of the world. So come home. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.